0: Hey guys, Brian Jodis here with pick up the six podcast Two asks today. I have a favor. If you guys are liking the content we're putting out, including our latest episodes with Tom Mulliken and commander Kirk Lippold, please rate and review our show. Go into whatever app you listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google play, even SoundCloud and give us that review and rating. I can't tell you how much it helps us out. And while you're at it, share our show with your friends. Let's help spread this message. Second, we've got Pick Up the Six gear on sale. Go to our website, pickupthesix.com. Click on the gear option, and you can get things like that service before self T-shirt, the Pick Up the Six logo. It's all there. Help us out. Put a little steam in this locomotive, and we thank you for that. My guest today is Peter Blach, a man of incredible purpose, but also proximity. Peter was a New York City firefighter on September the 11th, 2001. He was there that day, and the day's months and years that followed 25 years as a firefighter in new york city he's seen a lot and part of that journey also includes the miracle on the hudson it's an incredible story let's pick up the six with peter right now hey pete what's up man how you doing
1: how's it going brian very good
0: I am uh, beyond thrilled and honored to have you join us on this show on this day. Uh, We are we have recorded this a few days before today, but we will release this episode on what is Saturday, September the 11th, 2021, the 20 year anniversary of that incredible, remarkable and never to be forgotten day in America. And there's a lot to talk to you about specific to that day and the role you played in it and, and how life changed forever in those moments for all of us but for you uh, specifically. And on that day, you're wearing the uniform of the New York city fire department, but you've got this little bit of an unconventional road that gets you there. And part of it is just being a firefighter in New York is in your blood. So how do you end up a New York city firefighter by way of being a cop, being in the coast guard, it it kind of, it kind of weaves. So before we talk about that fateful day, tell me how you end up there.
1: Uh, So I got out of a, you know, Got out of high school, uh, born and raised in uh, Brooklyn city kid. So when I got out of high school, uh, I knew I wanted to get a city job, take city service. Um, my family was really made up of cops and firemen, um, cops on my mother's side and firefighters on my dad's side. Um, they go back to like the 1900s, you know, when, uh, the New York city fire department was still broken down into you had the Brooklyn fire department. Yeah. The metropolitan fire department. Um, they were, uh, going from like paid, uh, from volunteer to paid departments. And my great, great grandfather, um, started on a, uh, horse drawn, um, steam pumper that, uh, you know, literally horses took you to the fire scene. And, um, Wow. They literally hand-cranked water out of a steamer. And um, that's where the family history on the police department started, um, on the fire department started. Mm-hmm. On the police department side, my my mom's uh, grandfather, um, he started in the first precinct in lower Manhattan. He was actually part of what they called the night watch. And that was like, uh, really didn't have uh, police and fire at the time. This goes way back to like, the boss tweed era when um basically it was it was a pretty much a a corruption based
0: it's like um, gangs in new York, system. York style, right like
1: yeah well yeah it was so like if you wanted to be a New York City police officer or a firefighter back then you basically went to Tamity Hall and you met with boss tweed and basically you gave him money and he gave you a badge. <laughs> that was how wow you know it was way back then. But my mom's uh, great, uh, great grandfather, he started as uh, what they call Night Watch. And then Night Watch became the Metropolitan Police Department in Lower Manhattan. And that's when it kind of started getting more, uh, I guess, uh, more on the level, let's say. Yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, so I got good, good history on both sides. Uh, you know, fifth generation on the fire department side and third generation on the police department side. So after high school, wasn't really... I I didn't want to go to college right away. I mean, I had great grades in high school. I actually wound up getting a a full ride to St. Peter's College to play golf, believe it or not, in um, in New Jersey. And I turned it down and went in the Coast Guard. My father was like, why would you do that? (laughs) But I but I wanted I wanted to serve and I wanted a break from school. So went to the Coast Guard. From the Coast Guard, I took every city exam that came out, fire, police, sanitation, bus driver, train operator. Um, uh, I just liked, I loved living in a city. I, I wanted to, to work for the city. Um, and the police department called me first. I went on the police department and that was 91. And I, I literally took the fire and police exam at the same time, but fire called about two and a half, almost three years later, and I was offered a lateral transfer back over to you know, to, the, to the fire department. So at the time, like you could go from police to fire as long as you, they made your list number and, um, and then you wouldn't lose any time. You could transfer over time and benefits and all that. Mm-hmm. So I was debating, it was hard because I, I enjoyed my time as a police officer. It was, uh, you know, if you really think back It was busy. It was, you know, it's always been busy for police too, but it was really busy back then because you had crack was really coming into the city of New York, Brooklyn in particular, where I was living. I was, we were living in a Flatbush neighborhood. It was borderline Flatbush. And, um, when crack came into the area, it just decimated Mm -hmm. the area to the point where my dad moved us to Staten Island because it was getting just too crazy at that time in Brooklyn in the early nineties. And, um, so I enjoyed being a police officer because I got to work in my, my 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 precinct there, the 7-0 precinct, which was right in Flatbush. So it, uh, it, it, it was, I knew the area, I felt comfortable there, um, but I always knew in the back of my mind that I was gonna go for the fire department because I just, I grew up more in it as far as my dad would take me to work. My dad got on the fire department in 68. He went to Vietnam in 69. Came back and um, he got sworn in in '68 in the fire department, and he was finishing up Saint John's University. He was in the Army ROTC there, and um, so he he really didn't have to go because he was in college technically, mm-hmm. but he wanted to serve, so he you know he volunteered. He went over um, when he came back in '70, um, even though he was sworn in before he left. That's when he really started in the fire service in 1970. So my dad went through what we we consider the war years up there when the city was really burning down. Like New York's always had a fire problem and I think always will just based on occupancy, the older buildings. It's, it's a vertical city that's highly populated and the infrastructure and the buildings are older. So you're just going to have more fires. But in the 70s, they had that and then they had arson which was incredibly bad and decimated a lot of neighborhoods in the Bronx and Brooklyn, uh, even parts of like Queens. Uh, Mm. So, um, and upper Manhattan, like Harlem, you know, you're, you're more, um, you know, diverse neighborhoods highly uh, um, were highly impacted by both the arson epidemic. And then later it's like the city kind of just recovered from it, but then the crack epidemic hit and it just really tore up neighborhoods again. Um, but anyway, I grew up riding a fire truck with my dad in the, you know, um, late seventies, early eighties, and uh, I always knew the police department was a good job. But again, in the back of my mind, I said I really enjoy being on a fire truck and just going to fires.
2: Yeah.
1: So when I had when they when they knocked on the door and they said, hey, you know, we made your list number. Do you want to come to the fire department? Um, it was a hard choice, but uh, I left the police department and went to the fire department. So and it was. 25 years of, of, of a good choice. And I really enjoyed it. A lot of highs, a lot of lows. Um, I like to say there's more highs than lows. Mm. Um, and nine 11, um, was, you know, as low as you can get for for the fire service and especially for the New York city fire department, just on the amount of sacrifice and loss we had that day. And it really changed the job. There was, there, there was mm-hmm. two fire departments and I can talk because, I was on well before the 11th, and I stayed on well after the 11th. And um, you had two fire departments after September 11th, because it wasn't just about going to structure fires and putting out, you know, uh, building fires. It was, now it was terrorism response. It was, yeah. has its materials response. And um, it, it changed It changed the job, made it more, I don't wanna say more technical, but it, it, it put us in a direction that, um, we were not used to operating in.
0: yeah you think and, like uh, you know the 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 military is fat is tasked with fighting our nation's wars keeping our nation safe and on that day the war was brought quite literally to our shore and you guys uh you and your brethren you know and your brothers your sisters right you're the first ones in you you on that day became the first line of defense. You, you faced terrorism face to face like like we never had before take take me up to let me read i'm going to read something that you wrote and let's get into it let's let's talk okay. about that day yeah we were that day let me read what you wrote here this is ladder 123 it says i came in for the day tour so i got there about eight o'clock guys remember the first towers hit 8 46 a.m got there about eight o'clock relieved the guy in the backup engine a fireman ray hayden was actually standing in front of the quarters and he saw what he thought was a small plane and then an explosion into the north tower you could just make out the tip of the towers from the firehouse on canal North tower is on fire. We weren't dispatched yet, but Hayden turned everybody out. We took the satellite because we had the satellite with us. Six truck went in, nine engine went and satellite one went. You were on nine engine. Take me into that morning, Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001.
1: So it was a, it was a beautiful, I mean, literally one of the prettiest days I remember waking up to because, um, you could see for miles. I mean, it was like, um, it was so clear and so, uh, you know, just blue skies, no clouds. I mean, it was just exceptional, you know, visual clearance in every direction. So I just remember driving it to work that day and going over the Verrazano Bridge from Staten Island to, uh, you know, to Brooklyn on my travels to Manhattan. And um, I came across uh, Squad One, which was uh, literally just they were at the highway, uh, call and they were finishing up and I actually knew one of the guys on the rig. And I was kind of just actually came upon them. You know, they were kind of pulling off the side of the road after handling an accident. And I pulled up to the side of them. And one of my friends from squad squad one, um, just gave me a, you know, gave me a wave, Brian Belcher, because we lived in in Staten Island and uh, on the same street together on Potter Avenue. Brian gave me a wave and, you know, just uh, they went on their way back to the firehouse, and I continued on my way to Manhattan. Um, everybody that responded that day from Squad One was killed, mm-hmm. so um, including uh, uh, Stephen uh, Stiller, who, um, if, if you're aware of, they have the big non for profit Tunnel the to Towers, mm-hmm. and their goal is to give uh, mortgage free homes to any fire, police, or military um, really, really, really good yeah. charity, The family. Crew,
0: Frank and that crew over there doing amazing, amazing job. That's yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I've always had a connection, um, with them also because I knew, you know, some of those guys pretty personally from squad one
2: yeah.
1: and, um, continued on my way to the firehouse. I got to canal and Allen street and like everything else. I just remember going, wow, man, such a great day. And then you complain about getting a parking spot because there's no place to park in Manhattan. Even if you're a fireman you still got to find the spot you know there's only like three official spots in front of the firehouse that we park and there's 12 people coming in and 12 people going home so you just would do the car shuffle the double park shuffle I remember all those days you know and hope you didn't get a ticket in between or something (laughs) and um or get your car towed Mm -hmm. which is that which has happened and um uh just remember going upstairs and um speaking to some of the guys you know getting changed at the locker room and it was going to be just a normal day the talk was it was a you know it was a tuesday we had some rig maintenance to do and get some equipment ready and um we were expecting um uh, like a like a probie or a new guy to come in like the following tour so we just kind of some of us were getting just stuff together you know information for him to kind of fill him in when he came into the firehouse kind of thing and um Grabbed a cup of coffee. We were waiting for the officer, Jimmy Foti, to come down and, and do a roll call for nine engine. And the officers were in there in the office talking and me and Ray, um, we were more of the senior guys that day, went out to the front of the firehouse and said, Hey, let's get a cup of coffee. And just, you could literally stand in front of the firehouse and see the top of the towers from there. So we're like, Hey, grab a cup of coffee and we'll look down Canal street, you know? And, um, as we're out front, um, I remember, you know, here you could I remember here the plane and then Ray just kind of looking at me and he dropped his coffee cup and just like, you know, hit the uh hit the sidewalk that we were standing in in front of quarters, you know. I said, "Ray, you all right? Were you, were you drinking or something last night? What's going on?" You know. Cuz yeah. it just was like not like him. And he's like, "That plane is going to hit the North Tower." And I was like, Right. It's crystal clear. They fly over Canal Street all the time. You'll hear them come over and then, um, you know, they kind of veer off. So there's a little bit of a flight pattern there, or at least there was. And then they kind of veer off, you know, and um, I'm kind of looking at it because it did. It usually you don't hear them where you're on Canal Street. You don't hear them that that that, you know, loud. And we, we literally watched it go right into the top of the North Tower. I mean, we just saw the plane and then literally just a massive explosion with mm-hmm. flame. Um, Ray uh, got, got on the PA and said, hey, listen, uh, you know, we got a plane to hit the North Tower. And I just remember there being like a silence and a pause because everybody was kind of we were outside the firehouse apparatus doors and everybody was kind of inside. And they were like, what, what did he just say? You know. And then one by one guys kind of came out and looked and went, oh my God, like, what is that? And like, he's like, he's like a plane just hit the top of the North Tower. So we were normally assigned to calls at the North Tower. So we would go there for alarms. The, the, the World Trade Center complex, you know, then was such a incredibly wide area with seven high rise buildings, you know, encompassing it with one main um, um, like promenade area, which was basically the area that everybody came to the path train went under there and people could get off from the train and everybody kind of came out on this promenade. And it was like, I've been there several times on calls and, and, and just, you know, just off duty. It was really a nice place to go. And it just, you really got the energy of Manhattan when you were like in the promenade and it was all these high rise buildings around you. And you know you to me it just struck me like uh, like a city within a city mm-hmm. it was just so many stores so many people in and out all the time office workers you name it and um it was just a wild place to go And almost people watch at times you could go there and just see every part of new york city and every part of humanity would kind of come in and out of the trade center complex and um so we we started on our way. Both both uh, companies were loaded up. We were riding extra that day because um, for us in the New York City Fire Department, um, the, the North Tower was hit at eight forty six. Our roll call change is oh nine hundred. So it couldn't happen at a worse time for us because um, when it happened, we were you had twelve guys literally getting ready to go off duty. Come off and duty, you had you're guys. getting
0: ready to roll on, yeah
1: getting ready to roll on. So, you know, firemen are very personable. We talk to each other all the time. We refer to each other as brothers. So that's the time to break each other's chops, have a cup of coffee, you know, yell at somebody for, you know, Hey, you know, what are you doing here? You know, the the rig needs a a fixing up, you know, all good Mm -hmm. natured stuff. But that was the time to do it because like both ships were there, so to speak. So, um, it hurt us because every piece of equipment in the new york city fire department went out heavy because you could not tell a guy i mean the officers could not.
0: everybody's going
1: yeah they couldn't tell a firefighter you stay here they were like and the officers knew that and honestly our mentality our thinking at the time back then was firefighting is definitely a, a a manpower issue right if you i mean study upon study and just working in the field for 25 years you know that the more firefighters you have on a piece of apparatus, the quicker the hose line gets in place, the more people you have the opportunity to save. So it's it's a manpower intensive, intensive job, you know. And um, so that mentality is a little different now because of command and control and all that kind of stuff that we we practiced, but didn't really practice it back then because we never had anything like September 11th. So we never had an event so catastrophic that we lost 343 firefighters at. So, and, and then in my career up to that point, every fire that I was at, if we had more personnel, more equipment quicker, it would have definitely changed the course of events for more of your conventional fires. So everybody went down Canal Street, uh, loaded up extra, and um, about two blocks away, they actually officially dispatched us. Um, we just went cause we knew, I mean, we go there for regular alarms, you know, so we knew this, we were definitely going. So we get down, uh, right up at the base of canal street. And now you can really see, you know, what's going on. You can see, you know, what you're looking at as far as, you know, the North tower, all the floors above 90, just literally just nothing but incredible amounts of fire coming out of there. And I remember Ray just looking at me going, Pete, man, this is going to be the worst fire we're ever going to go to. And and Ray was a little bit more experienced than me, and he said, "I said we're gonna we're gonna." He said, "We're gonna lose guys. We're gonna lose a lot of guys." And I was just like, you know, I was still fired up. So I was like, "Okay, we're going to a fire. You know, you're getting that like game head on. You know, you're like, yeah, yeah. I'm in the New York City Fire Department. I've been trained for this. I have you know a number of years under my belt. I've been to some pretty serious fires." I'm like, all right, just give me the, give me that nozzle, and we'll go tear this up and put this thing out. And um, that's always been our mentality. Like, ever since I got in the fire academy, it was always taught to us that we never, we never lost a battle. And what we mean by that is, up to that point, we never, like, went back to the firehouse without putting out a fire. Yeah. And that was really how we trained. It's a very, it was, it was the training was very aggressive. You went to fires with very aggressive people. And um, an experienced and knowledgeable people because I didn't go through the war years, uh, you know, the 70s and early 80s where the city was really burning down. But I was broken in and trained by those guys. So I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. You know, I'm mentally ready to take this on. And then when you get to Vesey and West Street and you get out of the fire truck and you're throwing your tank on your back and the officer looks at you and he's like, guys, we are staying together, like no freelancing, we're staying all together. And I said, um, I just remember looking at Jimmy Fody, who was the officer in Nine Engine that day. And um, Jimmy said, Pete, we, we got people jumping. He's like, grab uh, the life-saving rope, grab an extra you know, air bottle, and um, I'll grab an extra length of hose and I'll get the standpipe bag, which is how we would hook up to, how we'd hook up our fire hose to the building system in a high rise building. Mm-hmm. And once usually it was not common practice for the officer to carry, you know, tools because you got promoted. So you earned the right. And the the way it was for us was the officer that was leading you, you didn't want him operating tools. You wanted him. His his job was never to to like um, hold you back. His job was to stop you if you were if something dangerous. So we want, always wanted the officer looking around. We didn't he's want him. He's the extra set of
0: eyes while you guys are, are yeah. really hammering He's away. he's, yeah.
1: you know, he's the senior person. Yeah. He was promoted and you want him um, not being engaged in say firefighting duties. You want him looking at you, making sure he knows where all his guys are and looking out for dangerous conditions where he's going to have to say, okay, guys, we got to pull back on this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So for Jimmy to grab like the standpipe kit and an extra roll of holes, I was like, it's like those little things you think about building up to something like, uh, I like to scuba dive a lot and they always tell you in scuba diving, it's always that little thing that starts off and rolls into a big thing. Like you didn't, you know, check your tank or you didn't do this. And then that leads into an emergency.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That was like my moment when I realized this day was going so South because I was like, "Whoa, this is like out the norm, you know? Yeah. And, um, we turned and we started uh, walking from Bessie and West Street into uh, the North Tower command post where Chief Pfeiffer had the command post set up.
0: Hey, Pete, real and quick. EK, real yeah. quick. How much time has passed between leaving the firehouse and getting to this moment? Because it's oh, hit at 846, would, right? What, five, what? Five, five, minutes, five minutes. Right, because yeah. 903 is in front of us. The second Correct. tower hasn't been hit yet. I just wanted to just set the time yeah. there just so we get a sense. Okay. You, go yeah,
1: I, I actually, in reality, it was probably more like three minutes. I only say that because we were the normal third do assigned engine company to the Trade mm-hmm. Center. And like in New York City, the golden the golden time is five minutes. Good so, yeah. So for us, it, we had to be there with under five minutes. So they wouldn't like, you know, send you on the initial alarm. Unless, you know, of course, people are out and then they fill in. But yep. um, it was quiet. Like at the other part of that, that morning, too, was usually you come in. You could smell smoke, the guys maybe had a fire the night before, you could smell it on the gear and in the firehouse. The night before was was quiet. It was quiet throughout the whole city. Like I remember just looking on a sheet we had and it listed kind of the fires from the, you know, the tour before. And I mean, at that time in New York City on the fire department, it would be common to come in the firehouse and look and they'd be like, oh, we had 25 fires in lower Manhattan, you no. know? Mattress fire to multiple alarm to whatever. And I remember looking on the sheet and going, wow, man, what the heck, man, would be everybody sleep all night. Like the city's going to fire us. You know, like we yeah. had no, like there was no, like there was calls, but there was no like actual fire duty. So yeah, it
0: was little, just, di- little did you know hell had been brought to you? Yeah. What morning. was,
1: what was, what was coming? So, um, yeah, I would say within three minutes we were down there and just from getting off the rig and getting your gear and then just making your way. And, and I I wouldn't say we were running, but we were not walking either because, mm-hmm you're kind of trained to look up and take things in as you're running towards. It's doing your size up, right? So if you're running too fast, you can't do a proper size up because you're going to miss things. So you're kind of jogging fastly and looking and sizing this thing up in your head. And um, I remember Chief piper coming on the radio saying, guys, watch your heads coming in. We got people jumping and we have a firefighter that's hit, hit by a jumper. That turned out to be uh, Michael Sir." uh, who was a firefighter, uh, in, in Brooklyn. And they came over on, you know, on the initial alarm right over the bridge. And when they were trying to go up towards the building, he got hit by a jumper. Mm-hmm. So, and he, he was killed. And, um, so when I heard the name, I was like, oh my God, like I know him, like, I was like, yeah, I mean, I knew him fairly well. So, you're just like, oh man, like this is going so terribly south and we have not even got in the building yet. And, um, that's when the first body probably landed, I want to say 15 feet, if that, oh. from us as we were walking up. And, I, you know, you, you look at those things in your mind and you just it's like you almost just can't believe you're, you're, you're in that moment. Because like when someone came out of the building from like, you know, that high up, you'd look, but you really weren't sure what I was seeing because they're so far away at that point. And it's almost like a leaf, like when a leaf kind of falls off a tree Mm -hmm. from high, it kind of takes its time. And then all of a sudden it gets to a certain point where then it just falls really quickly. And that's what was happening to people that were left with that choice to either burn to death or jump. And you would see, you know, a person's body come out of the the North Tower and they would almost feel like they were at peace, like just falling.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And at a certain point, if you took your eyes off them, I mean, they could be right on top of you. So when I say we were looking up and timing how to get into the building, so we wouldn't get hit by people. That's exactly what we were doing. We stopped and waited, two other people hit, and then we ran in. And I mean, when you got into the lobby, I just remember the the lobby of the North Tower kind of came out from the building facade a little bit, and it had a heavy steel kind of cover with heavy duty um, uh, high rise glass. And I mean, you, we were in there and we were waiting to get our assignment from Chief Pfeiffer, what we were going to do. And literally like the chief's orders were interrupted because it was just loud, incredible bangs, like one after the other, one after the other. And that was people jumping out of the North Tower and literally hitting the top of the, uh, of the, of, of the promenade where the command post was. And um, the first thing I saw when I got into the lobby was a completely burnt out elevator shaft. And another firefighter that I knew from uh, another truck company came up to me, and he's like, "Man, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to hump this up because we don't have any elevators." And I said, "Well, what happened to the elevators?" And I could literally just make out two people that were um, two bodies that were seriously burnt, and one of them had like. Um, look like I could see like a security guard patch on on his side and that's really kind of all you can make out. I mean they were they were they were badly burnt, almost unrecognizable. And it was basically a security guard sitting in front of the lobby because it was one of those elevators that you had to get badged into and our assumption was that jet fuel just came down that elevator shaft and just exploded in the lobby. So you had seriously burnt people like in the lobby that had no idea yeah. what just happened No walking idea walking around burn. No yeah,
0: idea. Cause in a moment, no idea. I mean, it's like, right. You snap a finger and that right. is un- unleashed in there. Let-, let me jump in here to, yeah. to, to again, set the stage. So, so what, uh, let me ask you two questions. When yeah. do you get to nine Oh three when tower two is hit and where are you physically in relation to that moment when that happens and how far up the building you get right, how close to the epicenter of all of it up there do you get?
1: So, we were on the right around the seventh floor. So, because it, 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 it like the scene went a lot quicker. Like, as soon as we got into the lobby, Chief Pfeiffer was like, No elevators, guys. I got it. He's like, I literally remember him grabbing Chief Fodi, uh, Captain Fodi, he's a chief now, but he's he was lieutenant at the time. Sorry, and he grabbed Lieutenant Fodi and Jimmy and he said, listen, I got no elevators for you. I need you guys to go up there and start fighting the fire. Try to get people evacuating on your way up. And he's like, just, just, just grab a staircase and start going. So we literally grabbed the B staircase and um, knowing that there's no elevators. And we got up to the seventh floor when, I mean, the building like shook, like I was in a high rise building. And I mean, the building shook so violently that um, one of the firefighters that was coming up, he was kind of off centered, carrying up hose. And when when that, that happened, he kind of fell back and fell down the stairs and he was fine, we got him up. But I mean, it knocked one of our firefighters right off his feet. And we were like, I was initially thinking that's gotta be maybe partial collapses. I mean, I didn't think, and most of the guys that were around me, none of us communicated or thought I, that the whole building was gonna come down. you know. So we thought what we were hearing is isolated collapses, mm-hmm. maybe like the mm-hmm. fire floor flowing into the floor below kind of thing. But all of a sudden it was like lights out, generators were out, there was no more uh, communication on the radio because the repeater was knocked out. Um, so 911 communications, I believe at that point, went down as well. So you can only communicate on your portable radio one floor up or below. Um, Because we lost our repeater system, which gave us the ability to communicate in that type of building. And I just remember going, I don't know if that's above us. I don't know what, like where that came from. What it turns out is Jay Jonas, who was the captain of six truck, we were together making our ascent. And he went over to one of the corners of the building and came back and said, guys, the South Tower just got hit. So we were like, Oh my God. So now you're like, okay, we know we're not at a fire now we were at, you know, an attack really. So the orders were the orders. So we kept proceeding up. Like, uh, like now you have the South tower hit and, and we're in the North tower right around floor seven. And we're like, Oh my gosh, like we have to go up, you know, past 90 to even start getting towards this fire plan was to get up to 60 because 60 had uh, transverse elevators so that you could get maybe an isolated elevator that was hopefully hopefully working and we could make our way up because mm. you know just carrying all the gear I mean roughly around 100 pounds of equipment and now you're trying to make your way up to like this fire area to make rescues and start putting the fire out and it's we were starting to have the effects of that like when we left floor seven, that's when I probably heard my first mayday that a firefighter was having a heart attack. Mm. So um, that was a that was a firefighter in engine five. Um, literally, his officer gave a mayday and said, "We're holding here. I have a firefighter that is is, is uh, you know is in bad, has bad cardiac episode going on." And it, it, if you were, you know, the fire department at the time was made up of 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 all sorts of different people at different time. So I just, I look at it and I go, I mean, I was working with men that were in their late fifties, you know? So, I mean, all that gear and now trying to run up, it it started to take a toll on us, even just going up the stairs. And um, when we got up to 25, we kind of reevaluated it. And I remember uh, Captain Jonas was talking to, Ah, uh, the officer of ladder 3 Patty Brown and they couldn't communicate on the radio but the cell phones were still working so the officers at the time had cell phones and like firefighters we had our private cell phones but we all left them in our lockers you know we just weren't in that generation of you know texting and everything yet yeah. so you know everybody left their cell phones in lockers <laughs> so um uh, Jay spoke to Patty Brown and he said, listen, we've made it up to 60. So ladder three made it up to 60 and they were like, we're going to try to get an elevator because we think we have a remote elevator that might be still working. Well, we continued our way up. And when we got right around 42, 43, uh, Patty Brown called back uh, Jay Jonas to captain of six truck and said, Hey, we're having problems with the elevator we're in. Um, I got up to the, I got up to, you know, he got up to, I believe, 95 or 96. And he's like, we have numerous dead bodies. We have, you know, uh, uh, a bad fire condition. And he's like, in his words, he's like, Jay, we're on borrowed time. We got to like get whoever we can out of the building now. And we just need to basically turn around and start getting any civilians that are left and get them out. And that's the last communication from, uh, from you know, ladder three that I'm, that I'm aware of. And um, Jay respected, really respected, you know, Patty Brown as an officer. They were in a rescue company together before they got promoted and stuff. So Jay turned to me and he said, listen, and none of us wanted to accept the order. Like none of us wanted to say, OK, um, we're going to turn around and just try to save as many people as we can on the way down and, and get out. None of us wanted to do it, but when you look at an officer like Jay Jonas, who, uh, you know, now deputy chief, but at the time was a well-respected, well-seasoned officer. And, you know, he's communicating with another well-seasoned, well-trained officer. And, you know, you follow the order and you you, you do what you're told. And it was like, okay, we're going to make our way down. So as we're making our way down, um, we got back down to about 30 and literally it was like the whole building shook again, incredibly violent. This time you could hear glass breaking, which we were like, okay, what, you know, we're still way down from the fire area. Like, what is that now? We had no idea what it was. Um, and again, the radios were now completely out. So communication was, was really not there. Um, but we said, okay, the order was given to come down by our officer, so we'll keep making our way down. Um, what that was in reality, that was the South Tower collapsed.
0: So it's nine fifty. That's nine fifty-nine, roughly 10 a.m. in the morning. And remember, right. guys, North Towers hit at 8:46, the South Tower at 903, less than an hour, and the South Tower collapses. You're in the North Tower as that happens.
1: Correct. Yeah, the North Tower was hit first, but it collapsed, you know, second. The South Tower was hit second, but collapsed first. And The way we rationalize it is that the north tower was hit higher so the south tower was hit more towards the middle of the structure so you know you lose two floors due to fire and collapse from the initial plane striking the building and now you have all that weight you know on top so it's like a house of cards you know like a jenga you know you can take out pieces from the top once you start taking them out from the middle you lose the whole thing right so but we we weren't aware of that so we're making our way down and we're taken civilians. We were still coming across civilians that miraculously made it through some of the fire area, but they were yeah. burnt badly. Couldn't, by the time they got to us, like around, back around 30 again, uh, we had a, we had a, at least a dozen civilians with yeah, us. So, that,
0: How many guys did you have? Can you pay, I, I want to get a visual of how many guys you had. And then you just said maybe about a dozen civilians. You know, what's this band of people look like in this movement?
1: So you have, you know, six firefighters, right? Five firefighters and an officer from engine nine. And you have the officer of ladder six and five firefighters. So you have 12 people there. And then we had roughly probably a little bit more than 12 civilians with us, but they ranged from completely ambulatory to burnt so bad that I, I can't believe I made it down this far, but I can't go anymore. So we had several people that we were carrying down with us. So now it's a, it's a matter of, we dropped our gear, our fire hose, stuff like that. We got to
0: get them out. We got to get them out.
1: We're just grabbing injured civilians and making our way down. And when we got to, and and we still stayed together, both both the engine and the ladder, we stayed together right up to where we got to right around the third floor. When we got to the third floor, we had, um, um, civilians, but we could manage them. They could, we could walk with them a little bit. We could carry them a little bit. Um, but there was one woman, Josephine Harris, who was completely. She had some very bad burns on her, and she was an older woman. And when she got down to three, she physically could not move anymore. She just and she was telling us just to leave her. She was like, just, just leave me. You guys get out. Leave me. And we were like, I remember Tommy Falco from. Ladder six went over to her and said, "I'm. Listen, we're not leaving you. We're we're going to get you out of here. We're going to get out together." So the decision was made by the officers that ladder six would stay and carry Josephine Harris down, and and two other civilians that were that were that couldn't walk anymore. And engine nine, which I was in, we were going to take the people that could at least walk or the walking wounded, as we say, we were going to get them down and get them out. And then if we got out and there was time, we'd come back in and see if we could help out with ladder six. When we got down to the lobby of the North Tower, there was like a bottleneck of people. Like it was just civilians, firefighters, and it was like dead stop. And we were like, "What, what's going on here? And um, nobody could get out of the lobby. So it was like, what do you mean we can't get out of the lobby? What it was, was that South Tower, when it collapsed, all that debris and everything literally took out the front of the lobby and where we were in the B staircase, you couldn't physically get out. It was nothing but concrete, steel, debris, smoke, dust. So, again, having an officer like Jimmy Fody at the time literally was a life-saving thing for us because he was normally assigned uh, to Engine 6, which really close to the trade center, and they would go there like way more than we would and just routinely go there on calls. And Jimmy said, hey, if we drop down to the sub-basement, we can go across the loading dock area and we can come out on Vessie and West Street. And that'll be more removed from the south and north tower. And that'll be better for us for, you know, debris falling and everything else. So, OK, so we go down to the we get down to the sub-basement now and we've got a bunch of civilians with us. We want to get them out onto vesey and West Street and then hopefully come back in and see where six truck is and help them. Well, we get halfway across the loading dock and it was just, it was like explosion upon explosion. And what it was, was it was just the floors on top of the floors starting to just pancake collapse. One on top of the other, on top of the other. And you just hear, you just kept hearing boom, boom, boom. And um, that's the point where I said, wow, we're not. We're not. We're not getting out of this. Like Mm. this is coming down too fast, and I mean, it's literally like an explosion above your head. Although it's just the start of the North Tower collapsing. So, Mikey Price, one of the senior guys in Nine Engine, he grabbed me, and I had a a woman who was pregnant to the left of me, and he grabbed me, and he said, "Let's go under this truck." Port Authority had a uh, had these huge sander trucks. They were just gigantic. Uh, gigantic garbage trucks, but they were filled with sand. And what they would use them for is when they had dignitaries or something, you know, high profile going on at the trade center, they were like ways to uh, section off the area. And, you know, even back then, they were at least thinking about terrorism to a degree. So they would use these big sanding trucks to to block off streets. And that way, if, you know, car bomb or something came in, It hit the truck, but the truck is filled with sand. So almost like a a movable barrier, right? So we get onto this uh, Port Authority truck. And I would say within a minute, it's literally just lights out. It's it's lights out. And if you've never, you know, if you've never been in like a collapse of a building, it's hard to explain it. But I felt like I was on a subway platform like, you know, in lower Manhattan. Like I was literally just standing on a subway platform. There was a rush of air. And like right before the train comes into your station, it was like, you know, three times as loud as that, but the force of the, uh, of like the air and I guess the explosion and the collapse, it pushed me like to one side of the truck. And I I, kind of like landed up under the axle of this truck because we were underneath it. And I just got lifted up and pushed in there. And um, I just remember like lights out and I just couldn't breathe because it was just everything just coming at us at one time. And I remember putting my 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 face into my turnout coat, my, my firefighting coat there, and just trying to just suck as much air as I could from inside my coat because uh, we dropped our tanks because we were just trying to drop weight to try to get people with us out. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, Oh man, I dropped my mask. I don't got my mask now. And I'm like, I'm going to suffocate to death, you know, under this truck. And, um, that passed and, um, Mike found me kind of came up to me and I couldn't see cause my eyes were so like, just filled with dirt and my mouth. I just remember like, I just spitting out, you know, all that debris and stuff in a way. And my helmet went, you know, flying I eventually found it on the way out, which I can't believe I found it. But it was like I had I had nothing. I had no tools. I was like just pretty beat up under this truck. And I remember looking over and um, the woman that was with me that I pulled, she was just absolutely 100 percent just flat, just nothing left of her, you know. And um, I just remember her telling me on the way down, I want to get out of here because I'm pregnant. And I just was like, to this day, it just beats me up. Like, it just beats my head up over it, you know, because I say, if I maybe I could have thrown you in front of me, but it was just one of those quick last minute under that truck. And we literally, me and Mike, just, we were under that truck for about 40 minutes and just trying to figure out, is, is everybody else still alive? Where's, where's the rest of our guys? 40 one minutes, by one. 40
0: minutes in the grand yeah. scheme. I don't mean to jump in here, but 40 minutes yeah. in the grand scheme of, Remember, guys, it's an hour and a half between hit and this thing going down. So that 40 minutes has to feel like eternity. Oh, it felt like
1: it felt like a year, you know? Yeah. Um. And and you're not sure what's up or down. Like, we weren't really sure. We I knew we were in the sub-basement, but I wasn't that familiar with the building at that time. So I'm like, OK, we're in the sub-basement with two levels below. Um, We're alive. That's good. But now how do we get out? You know, so we literally kind of moved out from underneath the truck and I could just make out the top of it. And it was like, someone took a can opener and just cut it. Like, and there was just one huge piece of, of steel and rebar. And um, right on the other side of it was two Port Authority police officers that were killed. Um, we literally could just make out like the patches on their on their shirts, you know, and um. We still were kind of like, okay, where are we? I remember Mike going, listen, we're alive. We're good. We started calling out. Just the
0: two of you guys at this point, right? By, uh, by the time uh, you get to this sort of. You know, it's military. just me and Mike
1: there yeah. under that truck, but we started calling out and Sean answered. He was in nine engine. Ray answered. He was in nine engine. Fody was calling for us. He was the officer. We were like, yeah, yeah, we're here. We're okay right now. And um, we still had three or four, you know, civilians that were alive that were with us. And we were like, Jimmy was like, listen, let's try to regroup. But we still like, it's still lights out for like, Mm -hmm. you know, 10, maybe 15 minutes after the initial collapse. And what happened was all of a sudden it was like the sky kind of opened up a little bit and you're looking up now and you're like, I can see the sky, but okay. But at one point I thought maybe I'm dead because I'm like, this just happened. And I'm looking up and I see clear blue skies now. And as it started to lift more and more like that, that debris and concrete dust and everything started to lift more, you were like, Oh, wow. All right. Um, we're okay right now. So we, we looked around and there was a lot of people that were, you know, several people that were with us that were killed, but there was uh, about four people that were, you know, there was four of us there that was civilians that were still alive. And, Jimmy was like, the officer was like, Hey, let's, let's, let's get these people out of here. And then we'll try to figure out a plan and see how we're going to come back in here because we knew ladder six was, was above us. So we knew they were between one and three and we're in the sub basement, but I'm thinking to myself, this is not good. Like we kind of just made it and I'm thinking, and we shouldn't have, I don't know how still to this day we did, Mm -hmm. but then I, I say, well, ladder six and other firefighting people are, you know, literally two store, you know, two floors above us. So I'm thinking, man, I hope I hope they have a chance. But I really was like, I don't see how it's possible, you know?
0: Yeah. So so the timing of all this, real quick, uh, Mm -hmm. I love to reset it just a little bit. Yeah. So the timing of all this is it, it can't be more than two hours has passed since all of this really starts. It's all about a two-hour window, oh,
2: yeah.
0: right? Um, yeah. 8.46 a.m. to 10.30 mm-hmm. with the collapse, and then probably yeah. another 30, 40 minutes after that. It's what you're talking about. You're finally starting to see that bit of daylight. And, yeah. and and how quickly does it go from, okay, we're alive, like I'm alive, right, to we have to move on to, the like, what's the next thing we have to do here? Uh, to be able to... So, All right, let's jump back in. Yes.
1: So it was literally, let's get these civilians that remain out. So we got them up to Vessi and West and we handed them off to uh, EMS personnel up there. And um, we were like, I remember Jimmy Fody looking at us and he goes, listen, guys, I got to ask you to do this. He goes, I know we're beat up, but I said, we got to go back in there and we got to try to find a way back in there and see if six truck is still alive. So nobody everybody was just literally like, yeah, let's do it. So we kind of dusted ourselves off. And I remember saying to myself, I got, I got like no helmets. Like, you know, you just kind of want a helmet on your head in these situations, you know, and i remember going, man, my helmet's gone. I got no, you know, real equipment, except my coat, and my pants that are on me. So we were like, all right, let's, let's just get in there and at least try to locate, put an eye on where we can maybe get in. And as I was walking back onto the, uh, into that sub-basement area. Uh, my helmet was just like sitting there. So I said, oh my, I can't believe I found my helmet. So I put my yeah, helmet like, back yeah, on.
0: Yeah, like he put it there for, like he left it there well, for. Right, me.
1: it's like, yeah. it's like, wow, okay. Like, I, incredible. And it was like, it was like upside down, like like a truck ran over it, but I was like, wow, I can't believe I still have it, you know? So we, you know, we, we basically made our way back over to where we exited the B staircase into the sub-basement And it was nothing visibly like when we left the area, like you couldn't like from that moment walking down before it was lights out, it was like a regular staircase in the trade center that opened up, you know, a heavy type door and you went onto a loading dock. When when we're coming back now, it's like nothing but debris, you know, small fires burning, rebar, glass, bodies. And you're just like, how are we ever gonna get in there? And then we were like, we haven't, nobody really heard from ladder six. So we were like, are they even still possibly alive? So we kind of took a moment and I remember just, I always had this St. Florian medal on my neck that my mom gave me, you know, you know, bless her soul. Cause she's no longer here. But she gave me when I first got on the, uh, you know, the fire department, she said, always wear this. it's a good Catholic boy. You know, always wear this. If you ever get in the tight spot, you know, pray to St. Florian, you know, mm-hmm. she remember getting on my knees and saying a prayer to St. Florian saying, if we could have a miracle, we really need it now. And, you know, cause you know, you're tight with these guys, you you spend so much of your life in a firehouse with these guys and they're, they really are your brothers. You go to each other's weddings, you help each other's houses out, you know, working on homes and stuff. And, you know, I've, I've worked so long with each one of those guys that I was like, please like, like, like let them still be alive kind of thing. And um, right after that kind of moment, um, there was a radio transmission by Jay Jonas. He gave a mayday that they're alive, they have civilians with them, they have uh, uh, some police officers with them and other firefighters from other companies with them. And they're like, but you got to come get us because we can't find our way out. So literally it turned into like, for us, it turned into like another rescue mission to try to get to them. And um, we just physically, I mean, we went in so many voids, tried so many different ways. Um, And working at the trade center then, especially like, you know, the, immediately after the, after the collapses and then, you know, days and even months later, that steel was so hot, you know, and just like, I remember just like crawling over different pieces of steel and rebar trying to figure out where's the beast there. Well, how can we get some kind of thing? And I mean, I just remember getting like a huge, like shank from one of those rebars. Just, it was super, you know, hot. And I just stepped on it the wrong way with my boot and it just went right through my you know, great toe. I just went right in and right out. And, um, I was like, what the heck? So you kind of yeah. just I remember just like picking my foot up going, Oh man, it was like stepping on the biggest nail, but it was hot. It actually corduroyed itself. Like I, when I took my foot off and, uh, like I picked my foot up and I said, Oh man, my foot is like, I just, there's like a piece of steel in my foot. And I picked my leg up, And I kind of took my boot off really quick to think, okay, how bad is it? And it was like, there was no blood. It was like corduroys. Whoa. Actually. Yeah. Like an EMT, you know, hours later, I said, Hey, can you do me a favor and just take a look at my foot? he's like, Oh man, you're good at corduroys itself. I was like, all right. Holy cow. Pete. I mean, whoa. It's crazy, man. So, uh, I mean, you had a lot of those, you had a lot of that going on. There was a lot of injuries days, weeks, and months after just, working amongst hot steel and rebar and all that stuff. Um, so they had, I can't, I don't know how many boots we replaced. Um, but you know, some of that steel was so hot, it was just melting the bottom of your firefighting boot. So, I mean, but, um, what eventually happened was, um, six truck literally kind of self-rescued themselves, like in the area that they were in, you know even though it took longer it eventually lifted and they were able to see like a way that they could climb out and they eventually were able to climb out and i believe it was ladder 43 was able to go down and actually get josephine harris out as well so um right now, so tell me tell us, guy's, tell
0: us her story tell us her story what what ends up happening to her that day
1: so she she you know she's with ladder six and she survives and um ladder six, uh, gets out with the assistance of 43 truck. And, um, they, they get out of the area that they're in and, um, everybody kind of regrouped. Josephine Harris, I know was, uh, taken to an ambulance and, um, she went on and had, uh, you know, a couple of good years. And then she actually wound up dying of, uh, of cancers that were contributed to, you know, the world trade Center. So she actually, died of like a, a World Trade Center related illness. And, um, you know, years later, everybody went to her funeral and um, they kind of refer to her as the angel in, in Stairwell B because Stairwell B, the B stairway that I was in, that ladder six was in, and anybody that really survived that day in the collapse was was in that line of the B stairwell. And they refer to that as, as the miracle of, B, of Stairwell B. And I mean, I would I would try to, you know, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a structural engineer, but I would, you know, city had plenty of conferences that you could go to and lectures and like, you know, the years after, and I'd always ask that question to like structural engineers, if I went to a course or something Be like, how is it possible that, you know, the whole building comes down? Like, if you look at the South Tower, it literally almost pancake collapsed all the way down to the foundation. That's why there was so many firefighters, civilians, law enforcement officers, killed in the South tower because first of all, it came down with no warning and it literally pancake collapsed all the way down with the North tower. When it, when it got to around the sixth floor, it kind of peeled out and it left the B stairwell pretty much intact. And, um, Jay Jonas probably summed it up the best. When I remember just asking him, like, you gotta give me something chief. I got he was promoted to chief at the time. I said, I mean, how did that happen? How did we make it like out of that? He goes, he goes, Pete, I know you go to all these classes, you're beating yourself up over it. I said, let me put it in simple terms you. It was like we were the banana and the banana peel. It got to a certain level. And instead of just pancaking down, it just peeled. And we were like the banana left in there. So there was no reason why it happened like that. I mean, I guess it truly was a miracle in a way. And um, if it didn't happen that way, I wouldn't, wouldn't be here right now. Yeah. so yeah. um
0: incredible it's incredible the way yeah. that that plays out you said the number earlier 343 firefighters that are lost yeah, on that day yeah the, the the ability for you to go back in and recount this for us let me tell you this we don't take it for granted i want you to hear that from me and from the hundreds of people that'll listen to this episode we don't take it for granted what it takes for you to go back into that moment so thank you for doing it even 20 years removed you know um uh, we, we just don't take it for granted at what point because there, there's so much more and honestly p we could talk for hours about it maybe we come back and, and do more at what point uh, the day has to quote unquote come to an end at some point for you right you wow. have to be removed from the scene right how do you get well, tell hours you. and hours and hours later? But how does all of so, that fall into place? If you don't mind.
1: So it really doesn't, it really doesn't happen. So so yeah. after ladder six self rescues and Josephine Harris is taken out of the area and handed over for medical attention, um, literally ladder six and engine nine, the day almost was just starting because we knew we had hundreds of firefighters missing, you know, 37 Port Authority police officers were killed, 23 NYPD were killed, close to 3,000 civilians were killed. You know, you don't know the numbers at the time, but you know that there is people that have been, a lot of people have been killed in this incident event. And you're like, okay, how do I, how do I stop it though? How do I find somebody and at least put a positive on this catastrophe, right? So, we were actually given orders by a chief to attempt to fight the fire in tower seven because we had no more resources. There was nobody else really coming at that point. They were starting to activate mutual aid and get companies and stuff from like New Jersey and places like that. Um, But we literally were told, let's try to go to uh, tower seven and try to put that fire out. So we got involved with stretching a hose line down to the waterfront to hook up to a fireboat, and it's 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 pretty unique story because my dad was the uh, was a battalion chief at the time, and he's the one that actually said, "Guys, I know you're beat up and everything, but we don't have anybody coming, and I need to try to put put that fire out in Tower Seven because they didn't want Tower Seven to collapse, and then it impinge upon any rescue or recovery effort that could happen at the North Tower. So our engine company that we came down on there, it it was a two-piece company. You had a a traditional fire engine, 2,000 gallon per minute pumper that we responded to regular structure fires, and high rise fires with, and then we had a satellite unit. That satellite unit was like a high pressure, um, uh, high pressure, basically hose wagon that could supply large amounts of of water. And it was utilized when a hydrant system went down and we couldn't get enough water to fight a fire. So our engine was destroyed. I mean, flat as a pancake, there was nothing left of it. And the satellite somehow remained. So we knew that if we could get water to the satellite unit, it has a monitor on it, which is just a giant um, like nozzle that's attached to the top of the fire engine. And we said, if we can get the satellite monitor working, we can maybe start putting some fire out in tower seven. So we got the satellite closer to the building. And we we said, well, we have no water because in the collapse of the North and South Tower, not only did you lose 911, any sort of repeater system for first responder radios, but you also lost all of your water mains in lower Manhattan. So there wasn't enough water around to even start fighting the fires. So the fireboats were in heavy demand and being utilized. But we only had three fireboats, you know, at the time in service. You had Marine Nine, Marine One, and Marine Three. And they were already docked up, being utilized, pumping as much water as they could. So my dad turns to me and goes, Pete, grab that five-inch hose. And we had about, whew, about three city blocks to go to make it down to the waterfront. He's like, listen what I'm going to do is I'm going to have that other satellite that's still not destroyed from Brooklyn. You guys are going to meet up and we're going to stretch all this hose down to the waterfront. And we're going to see if we can get a fireboat to supply us. And then that way you can start putting out fire in tower seven. And, um, when I got, when we, me and sean got like the last length of hose. And if you've ever pulled like fire hose, five inch hose is just like incredibly heavy. And it's just, you don't, Two people we we would always practice with two guys stretching it because they were hundred foot lengths, they were five inch and they were incredibly heavy. So we finally get all this hose down to the west side by the water, and there's a fireboat there. And I'm like, this is great. We can hook right up to this fireboat and we'll get water. Well, the fireboat was actually the Harvey Eisner, which was a re- it was it was decommissioned and retired two years prior to nine eleven. And it was bought. By like Retired New York City firemen That worked in the marine division For a dollar The city was like Here you guys can have it And they yeah. They basically gave They gave tours on it And like yeah. promoted Like the history of the fire department and fire prevention But it wasn't A working fireboat Anymore It was literally to take Tours In the Hudson River on it You know But It was a bunch of old time Salty dudes from You know FDNY That worked in the marine division For years And they're like Kid get over here We'll start pumping And I was Holy like Holy smokes Wait a second what? I was like, yeah, I was like, is this like, I'm, I, it didn't strike me at the time because all right, I'm seeing a fireboat, but it's a lot older than other fireboats I've seen. And I'm like, they're like, you got the fitting? And I'm like, well, no, usually you guys have the fitting to connect the hose, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but kid, we're, this is like, we're just retirees. We brought the boat here, but we don't have the fitting.
0: They just sprung into action, pump. right? They just sprung. They into were edge. like,
1: yeah, they were actually working on the pumps as we were stretching the line down because I don't think the pumps were used in probably two years. Sure. <laughs> so we get down there and there's this one fitting that we need to just hook up this five inch hose to reduce it down so that it can hook up into a three and a half inch, you know, outlet that that the fireboat could now pump and supply it. But they didn't have the fitting and we didn't have the fitting because the fireboats had it. So we're like, I go, what are we going to do? We don't have the fitting. Like we're right here to maybe start yeah. water going. And we don't have this fitting. And it was like, my dad walks up to me and he used to be the captain of nine engine before he got promoted. And he's like, what are you missing? I go chief, you know, cause we're in the, in the moments, I didn't call him dad. I'm like it's your chief dad, right? You're we in the middle yeah. of
0: all this with your dad. Said, it's
1: incredible. I said, we don't have the fitting. So he looks at one of the senior guys that was, you know, uh, came in and now we had off duty members joining up with us and John Tedesco and him always had this love hate relationship. You know, they would just, they would like, tag team and break each other's chops all the time, you know? And John looks at him and goes, I know what you're going to say, chief. He goes, we got one in the basement in the locker on Canal Street.
0: Knew exactly where it was, right? Yeah.
1: He goes, he knows exactly where it is. So he's like, well, how are we going to get it? He goes, listen, just stay right here. He goes, you and John, you're going to jump back in. the Whatever I get you, just stay here and you and John go get the fitting. So there was a highway cop there in a highway car, NYPD. My dad grabs him and says, listen, man, we're going to have a chance of getting water to put that building out. These guys have a fitting, but it's back at canal and Allen street, which now that the trade center is completely down, it's like debris fields. How do you even get like around yeah, to get back right. to the firehouse? This highway cop was great. I mean, it was probably the craziest car ride I ever took him in my life. He was like, I got this. He put us in the back of the ton hopped in the back. He says, you up in the front with me. I mean, we were doing two wheels in the sidewalk going yeah. up, going around lower Manhattan. I mean, there was like people bailing out of the way. we're And he's like, you, you, this is like important, right? I'm saying, it's like, if we can get this going, we've got a chance to put that building out. He's like, I will get you there and back in like six minutes. And I was like, what? Let's roll. <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah. he did, man. He rolled. We did. We went down there. And then when we got down there, craziest thing I remember, we get down to the basement and it's a combination lock. And, and we're like, who's got the, you know, it's one of those things we put extra gear in and nobody really went in it. Yeah. We were like, how do we get that? Highway cop comes down. He goes, what's going on? He goes, I want to get you guys back. He goes, oh, believe it or not. He goes, I don't know if we're going to have to have you shoot the lock off or not. But
0: Yeah, well, he pulls we out, the out the 38. And he's yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, he didn't pull out the 38, but he happened to have bolt cutters. That's what we thought was going to happen. I said, holy shoot, this guy's just going to light this locker up. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. It's one of them days, you know. He comes down. He goes, I got it. He comes down with bolt cutters. He cut it open and wow. we got this fitting. I mean, it, it literally. He got it was, back, and Yeah, yeah we, he drove us back. And we started getting water going and we started fighting the fire in tower seven. And then remember my dad running up to me, you know, chief and runs up to me, he's like, just lock it in place. We got to get back. They're saying that they're starting to see, you know failure on, on this side of the building. And I think Seven's going to come down. So by then, you know, this is like in the afternoon now and you're just mm-hmm. like physically shot. You did all this to, you, to keep going. Now you finally got, I remember just taking a moment and sitting on top of the fire engine and I was like, at least I'm doing like something positive right now. I'm shooting water and it's yeah, starting to put out yeah, this fire. Yeah. And now it's like, okay, lock it in place and let's go. And I said, okay, we got another job for us. So me and John Vanderstar were on top of the apparatus and we get down. John looks at me. He goes, don't even look back. Just haul ass and start running. And I'm like, we just start running. Tower seven was coming down. Hmm. So we got half a block away. Tower seven collapsed. And we just saw the top. Of this nozzle that was shooting water, it literally just went boom, boom, you were, gone. You were Straight. just,
0: the, you were just there. We were
1: just there. It flattened the rig like right down to the rims of the tires. Like it just boom, gone. So I how say, many, like, how many
0: lives you got, bro? How many lives do you have left in you?
1: Oh, it was it's amazing. It was, yeah, it was, and oh that. My god, it's amazing. And that didn't, that didn't end the day though, because yeah. we literally just regrouped, and then they sent us to the Marriott Hotel.
2: Because just the Marriott going. tub keep was going.
1: free burning. And we were literally gotten into the Marriott. And then there was a battalion chief in there. I think it was Chief Hayden might've been there at that point, just looking in on it. And he said, guys, there's nothing we can do for this building. Everybody's out. It was so damaged structurally by the, you know, by the, um, uh, by the collapse of the South tower. He was like, I'm not going to lose another guy today because everybody's out and we don't have enough resources to put it out. And, and guys were still like, chief, we can, to to credit the guys that I worked with. So Chief, we can we can do this. We can find water and we'll start putting this out. And we were like, you know, thank God we listened to them because we left and then they had partial collapses in the Marriott. Mm. And they had we had we lost firefighters in the Marriott. Like they died um when when the South Tower collapsed and hit the Marriott, we lost firefighters that were in there because Chiefs originally identified it as a building that if South Tower does collapse, it's going to take out the Marriott Hotel. So we had firefighters from ladder 12 in there and they they were killed and the, the South Tower collapsed because it cut the Marriott almost in half, you know? So we get through that kind of moment and then it was, we were ordered. Chief Hayden at that point, this is like well into the evening, comes to me and says, listen, I know you've been here since the beginning. All your guys have been here since the beginning. He spoke to the two officers. He said, you guys... I don't care where you go, but you have to leave here and don't come back for at least four hours. So we were like, all right. So we went back to the firehouse. And I gotta tell you, I think we got there and we were just like, you know, it's sinking in like what you went through. At that point, you're getting a chance to call home, tell people you're alive, all this stuff. And you're like, I think we sat around for about two hours just, you know, washing ourselves off just, oh my God, like, what did we go through kind of thing. And I just remember one of the senior guys going, you know what guys, we still have a lot of brothers down there and there's a lot of civilians down there. And I said, I, I can't sit here, you know, even for four hours. So we literally get down back to the site and chief Hayden, tremendous man, tremendous gentleman. He was kind of like the chief in charge now by proxy because all we lost all of our top tier you know fire command structure we lost the chief of the department we lost the deputy chief of operations we had like our command post was wiped out so but i just remember going down there and one of the senior guys joe hodges turns to me and says if we go we better not go in front of chief hayden because he's going to be mad because he told us to stay out here for four hours so we had to like sneak around him to go to like to work but he saw us i know we did and he was just like, yeah, all right. I'm trying, yeah. you know, one of those moments, you what know. What are you gonna do? Yeah. And we we literally worked through the night. We were on the piles searching under voids, um, working on hand lines, trying to put fire out. And we we didn't like we literally didn't stop for twenty four hours. And then we all went back to the firehouse about three or four hours of trying to sleep, and we were back at it again for another twenty-four hours. And it went like that for so like almost that first week.
0: I was going to say, and when do you, when do you, when, when do you go home? What
1: I mean? didn't go home for a week. Wow. I didn't leave for a week. And then you went home and you talked to your family, you talk to your loved ones and great support. Um, but then you're like, I got to go back there. Like my job's not finished. I got to go back there. So many, uh, you know, firefighters that it was personal. Like I, I lost 43 personal friends. Like people that I got on the fire department with lived in my neighborhood, went to each other's weddings, drank beer with each other, you know, bitched and complained about each other, but we were close. And I just was thinking in my head, oh man, he's working today in rescue five. He's there. You're just going through names and names and names. And I just didn't want to be home because even though you're home and it's safe and you're with your loved ones, your head is not home, you know? And, and it took me, It took me a long time to be able to kind of separate that again. And one of the best things that the fire department did uh, with uh, Commissioner Cassano, uh, Chief Cassano at the time, was him being a Vietnam veteran. He was like, I need to get like vets that know how to counsel into firehouses because in his words, like, you know, Cassano was a Vietnam vet, you know, so my dad's a Vietnam vet. I've never really talked about Vietnam to my dad. He's just like, those guys just don't talk about that. But I remember after this event, I was like, I was like, dad, you, you know, you've been through a lot, you know, fire department in the war years, Vietnam, civil unrest, you know, crazy times of the seventies and the eighties. I said, where do you put this in perspective? He goes, he goes, Pete, there is no perspective over this. He goes, I was at the fall of Saigon. This was worse than the fall of Saigon. He was a first Lieutenant in the army when Saigon fell, he's like, this is worse than the fall of Saigon. And I was just like, well, that really sums it up for me. Cause I was like, that's, I don't, I don't think we can. I don't, I hope we never replicate the day. Um, but I also, I look back at what we did and what we tried to accomplish and everybody that I worked with, every firefighter that I turned out with police officer that I came across going up and down the B stairwell, um, everyone had that same idea. Like, I don't really think we're going to make it through the day, but if we have to go out, we're going to go out trying to save people. And until I could sit down and actually talk to other veterans, you know, kind of get what they went through, you don't realize how like that PTSD is really creeping in on you. And you've got to like, you've got to figure out a way, like a very good friend of mine, you know served in Iraq, two tours in Afghanistan, he would grab me and like, you know, like, you know, this is like years after 9-11 and he would be like, Pete, you gotta learn how to separate it. You gotta learn to leave things on the fire truck and then go home because it was really affecting my, you know, you know, I, I got a divorce over it. It was not a good time in my life. I never went to the bottle or medication. I had plenty of friends that went down that path. And you know, you can only help somebody so much. And I lost friends to suicide after it, just firefighters that just could not process it. And combination of not being able to process this and drinking or alcohol or drugs, bad combination. And when I finally lost a close friend to suicide that literally just could not, he lost everybody in his wedding party and he was a great guy and he was a great firefighter and he was a veteran. But he he couldn't he couldn't separate the day. He always carried the day and it eventually killed him. Like he eventually just took his own life. And it took a moment like that for me to go, I'm going down a bad path. Like I have to really figure this out. and if I'm gonna stay here for my kids, even though my marriage didn't work, I gotta really um, work this out. And you know, to the ex's credit, it was supportive. My children are supportive. you know, people like yourself, you know, people want to know the story um, and there's there's days when I can tell it and there's days I just can't, um, but people understand it. And it took me years to realize I, I never wanted to be a 9-11 guy. I never wanted to be the 9-11 survivor guy. I'd like to just go to the grocery store and just be getting yelled at because I'm taking up an extra spot in the line kind of thing, you know, but you realize when you go through something like that and I've, I've speaking to, uh, you know, Chief Pfeiffer about it, who, He was one of the, you know, original on the scene chiefs. He was at a gas leak. He had the film crew with them. They filmed the plane going into the building, you know, Mm -hmm. chief Pfeiffer, you know, he ordered his brother, you know, in 33 engine. He was the officer up the same stairwell that we went up and he didn't make it. And I would always say to him chief, you know, um, you know, I, you know, I I don't know how you kept you cool that day. And just like, and he's like, and he's, so if you've ever met Chief Pfeiffer, I've heard him speak, he's like such a soft-spoken, like he's so full of knowledge and so like salty, as we say in the fire business, because he just has, he's always worked in busy places and he just has that, you know, ability to manage fire scenes like that. But I, he's so well, he's so soft-spoken. It's like, you almost gotta ask him, hey, what'd you say? You gotta ask him to speak up, but he's just such a gentleman. Yeah. And I've spoken to him in, in the years after and we're close, and um, he's you know, he's like, you have to get to a point, Pete, you realize you were part of history and it's only going to die if you don't keep telling the story. And I'm appreciative of, of people like yourself who want to hear the story, because, you know, um, to me, I look at it like, you know, I have I have, you know, two of my boys are, are coming of age. They're, they're thinking about the military. They're thinking about fire service, police service. And I look back and I go, I really hope we learn from the lessons of the day, because I truly feel like we've done a 360 again. I'm not, I don't want to bring politics in it, but I think we did a 360 again and we're right, you know, right there with the years, months, weeks and days before September 11th, kind of the way we're acting, you know, with military, getting out of Afghanistan the way we did. I just, I have that feeling and I I really consider myself like a a history student now. You know, some of the things that I did in my life to just help my head was I went back to school. Mm. I got a PhD from Walden University in crisis management because I'm really interested in how we respond to like, uh, you know, surge capacity. Like how does the military respond when um, they're going on a mission but they're outgunned? How do you respond in a surge capacity to, you know, catastrophic event in the fire service or as a first responder. And I went back and I studied it. And part of it was learning history, September 11th, lessons learned. And I just look back at what I've learned in in two years of studying for my PhD. And then I look at where we are now and I go, I mean, just go back. I tell people like on the, if you want to know like 9-11 and stuff, go back and read the 9-11 commission report it's free. You can download it. You get to like the first couple of pages in the, in, in that report. And it highlights everything, you know, stuff that me and you talked about with, you know, two embassies hit the coal, like no reaction really from us, you know, as far as a strength and you look at where we are again. And I just go, you know, how long is it going to be before they look at that as a weakness again? And then they come hit us. And, um, I hope I'm wrong um, for my kids' sake, because like every generation has a war, right? We just don't mm-hmm. escape it. And I'm I'm looking at them and going, I hope they never have to see anything like I did or like or, did, yeah. or anybody
2: yeah.
1: has to go through it. Yeah. And you know, it, it triggered two wars. I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq started on Tuesday, September eleventh in lower Manhattan. And it led to a lot of our, you know, veterans and soldiers and just good people in this country getting killed and I've always I've, I've always tried to make a trip every year to Walter Reed Hospital mm-hmm. and I don't I don't publicize it but I, I did it like two months ago and we still have so many of our veterans fighting through illness and injury because of those wars and now you know the ones that I've gotten to know have personal relationships with you know, go to Walter Reed with them at least once a year. They all say the same thing. They're so angry of 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 the sacrifices that they made because of the way we're leaving Afghanistan, and it's just. I hope that it's they been find a tough, peace. It's
0: been a tough. It's been a tough few weeks, to, and because it, it's oh. been on display in front of us, and I know, and I know it means oh, a lot yeah. to you, and, and and this year more more than years before, Pete. We are eternally grateful for what you've done not just for the city of New York but for our country, what you did on that day. All right, before we go, because that's been a heavy, it's been a heavy time. Yeah. You have led this remarkable life, right? You were there in 93, you were there in 01, you were there in 05 when the Staten Island Ferry crash happens. You're standing on the dock when that happens. Not going to get that today. Sure. You're there in 09 at the Miracle on the Hudson. So before we go, can you give me about the 10 minute version of the Miracle on the Hudson, 2009, that fateful day, where that airliner ends up in the Hudson Recount it for me and this incredible moment where you have to say these words, I am commandeering this vessel, yeah. this boat. All right. Tell me the 10 minute version of that. Stuff.
1: You know, there's still, there's still a 50 page report that I uh, have a chief officer that every time we kind of get, you know, cause we all, we communicate with the guys that we worked with for years, especially when we come sure. up to the nine anniversary sure. and there's still one particular chief. I won't mention his name but he always says to me, he goes, you know, you never finished that commandeer report. And I said, cause it was like 50 pages. Deep. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I think it was done once before in like during world war II. Like yeah. they've so, never so had you, like.
0: So you are the very <laughs> first official pirate we've had to join us on this show. All right. Tell me, tell me your story of the miracle on the Hudson.
1: So the reader. So um, I was, uh, I was actually working. I was, I was hired on overtime and I was working as the officer in ladder seven. So um, at the time I was assigned to ladder two in Midtown and this firehouse was a little bit, you know, lower down. Um, but they said, Hey, we got an overtime shift to uh, probably be an easy day for your boss. We don't have any building inspection. I never forget. we got no. The aid was, I, they were trying to get somebody to work it and I already worked a bunch of hours, but the battalion aid called me and said, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you this overtime shift, right. but you're not gonna have to do any BI. The chief's a good guy. I said, just go there, get through the day tour. And, uh, you're doing us a solid by filling the spot and it'll be painless on you. You know? And I said, okay, John, he was the eight. I said, no problem. So I go down there. (laughs) Basically we get a good fire as soon as I get there and we come back, we actually go out for another fire and this fire, we were out of our area. We were, um, the firehouse was on East 16, East 16th street and, uh, and, uh, first Avenue. So, uh, we get called as a on a second alarm as an extra truck and we're up a couple of blocks from the Intrepid where the Intrepid Air and Space Museum mm-hmm. is there on the west side of Manhattan and. It was a fatal fire a civilian was killed in the fire and um, everybody that operated there um, we had to get a report together right away where we operated what we did so the chief could you know put it together and get this report to the commissioner because um, there was a fatality and that's kind of how it worked. So I remember freezing. I was soaking wet. It was so cold that day. Ice is floating by, you know, down the Hudson River. Um, Most of our stuff, it was a tower ladder, ladder seven. And we couldn't get the boom back down because it was frozen. So we eventually kind of hand cranked this thing down, get it going. And the guy grabs me, the chauffeur, great guy, grabs me and goes, uh, hey boss, he goes, we have a, a bike that was hit by a, you know, taxi. And that's the bike that firefighters in Manhattan, we called it a detail bike. Cause it was so hard to get parking spots around firehouses that if you mm-hmm. finally got one and then they had to like send you to another firehouse to fill in for manpower or something, yeah, you're not going to hop the in a car. You're
0: not gonna have a spot. Gotta, right. You gotta, you know,
1: these, these guys would jump on this bike, which had a, you know, looked like something out of Mary Poppins had a big old basket in the front. You put your right. gear in it, wear your helmet right. and pedal, pedal there. Right. The but go. it got hit by a cab. So it was, they had a bike store that would fix the bikes for us for free. You know, on the west side, so you know, firemen. Okay, free. That sounds good yeah, for yeah, us. Yeah. So we we go over there to pick up our bike, and um, I'm on the corner, you know, with the apparatus park there, and the guys are in there getting the bike and everything. And um, person comes up and knocks on the window of the fire truck and goes, uh, "There's a uh, there's a plane in the in, coming down the river," and I'm like, "Oh, that, you know, that's all the time. It's uh, you know, they have the, the planes that land, the seaplanes. You know, they bring." you know, people back and forth, they do tours. I said, oh, that happens all the time. He was like, okay. He walks, a typical New Yorker, he yeah. walks on, you know, and then I'm finishing up the report and in, in, in the rig there and writing some stuff down. And another civilian comes up, bangs on the window and goes, there's a plane like right there, like coming down the river. And he goes, and I said, ah, oh, it's a seaplane, plane, right? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, it's a passenger plane. I go, what? So I get out of the truck. And I had like a, just a, a little like little pair of binoculars that just kind of shot down right on the street. And I'm looking and I'm like, holy mackerel. I said, there's a commercial airliner just floating down the Hudson River. And I'm like, "How is was that? It, it, it like took my breath away for a minute. Cause I'm like, I couldn't believe what I was saying, you know? Mm-hmm. So I grabbed the guys on the radio and I'm like, at that point, I'm trying to get over. They had some fire duty going on in the area. So it was kind of hard to get in to get the dispatcher. So I just come over and I'm like, you know, out of seven, I said, we have a commercial airliner that is in the Hudson River and floating down past the intrepid Air and Space Museum. <laughs> and it was like a pause. They had the these fires and stuff were going on. And it was like, everybody just went like silent. Like, no, everybody's I, I know because I've had officers tell me when well, you came over with that, we were like, no way. Like, we thought you were like talking out loud to somebody. We didn't even think you were given that communication. Yeah, yeah. So we head off down there. And, uh, you know, by then the dispatcher was like, yeah, we're getting multiple calls on it. We got a commercial airline down and we get there and now it's like, okay, we're here to help, but we're here. It's frozen water and there's the plane. So what do we do? So I, everybody looked at me and I was like, let's get on that ferry. So they just had a fast ferry pull in. And it was like, you know, uh, I want to say a kid, but he was a younger person that literally just got out of the Navy and he just got this job in New York City piloting fast ferries back and forth. And I remember running up, you know, the plank there onto the boat and we go into the pilot house and he's looking at me and he's like, listen, we got to go over there and see if we can help. So we need you to take us over there. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't, I, I don't know what the rules are on that. It's like a new job for me. He's, I said, listen, I said, well, I'll take the pressure right off you. I said, I got to commandeer this boat we got to go over there and we got to get these people. And he's like if you're commandeering it I'm good with it. I said, "Well, I'm commandeering it." Off we went. So, we get there and we wound up taking several people off one of the wings of the plane. And to his credit, I don't know how he did it because if he, I was always afraid when he was pulling up with the ferry now. Yeah. And we're going to try to take people off the wing. We're going to hit the wing.
0: Days. I mean, we could create a real problem here.
1: I'm thinking even waking people off the off the wing, you know he feathered this thing in there. I mean, literally put this ferry on the wing of one of these plane, uh, yeah, wing of the plane. And we were able to like literally just walk people off the wing onto, onto the ferry.
0: And, How many people um, do you think you guys got off onto the ferry?
1: Oh, at least a dozen, yeah. a dozen people. What's, and, that, um, what's
0: that imagery? I mean, I'm sure you can close your eyes. Just like the terrible things that happened on nine 11, you probably have times where it's hard to shake it. Because you pull up and you see these people standing there like that. I mean, it's an iconic image to this day of that plane oh, sitting yeah. there. It's amazing.
1: And it's 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 uh, you know, and I had to make a decision too as an officer then because I sent my guys, you know, that we had cold water exposure suits that um that that ladder seven had, and they were able to the guys were you know smart thinking and they grabbed our cold water exposure suits because ladder seven was what they call a water rescue company too. So they would send it to like people in the water, boats in distress in case we could do something from land. So the guys grabbed two exposure suits, which are, you know, like the ones you see in like, you know, when you watch like, uh, um, you know, the crab fishermen and stuff, those mm-hmm. big rubber suits yeah, that yeah, you yeah. zip up and you can survive. So the guys were like, hey, boss, we got these two. We, we brought the exposure suits with us. You know, you want us to go in. So we actually had to make a decision and I wound up sending um I wound up sending, a, whoop, did I lose
0: you? Oh, you're good. Go ahead.
1: Of a, yeah, so I, I wound up sending one of the guys on a rope, you know, over the wing and then around so that he could eyeball in the plane to make sure that we weren't missing anybody, you know?
0: Are um, you working with the crew? Like, how are you guys working
1: with- So we, we, did, we did it right off Sully the- Sully and all the these front.
0: guys, like, are you engaging with all them to make all this happen?
1: So, so um, Sully, um, you know, the pilot at the time. Um, I know he was like all the way still in the front, making his way out, like behind people and stuff. Um, he wound up getting on, I think it was one of the NYPD launch boats he got on. And um, and you know, the, the rest of the crew was taken out. But um, I just wanted to double check, you know, as being there to make sure we didn't miss anybody, you know? And I remember just it was like Younger guy to the fire service, but he was like already in the suit. And I was really apprehensible about sending him in there. But I said, listen, I'm going to give you like two minutes. I'm going to put you on the line. I just want you to kind of. And like what he did was he kind of got off the the ferry front, you know, front decking of the ferry and he got onto the wing and then he kind of like floated over to where the door was. And he kind of eyeballed in there. And then he started to go in on me. And then I was like, listen, pull him back on the rope. Cause I'm yeah. thinking this thing, this thing goes down. I don't want to lose a guy, right? So um, he looked in, everything was good. He came out, he got back on the boat. And um, yeah, and um, it was a good rescue. And then, um, like, I guess the funny part of it was we're back on the boat now and we're feeling pretty good. We feel like we accomplished a good part of the mission, you know? And um, one of the, you know, civilians that was rescued said, I want to take your picture. You know for 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 rescuing us you know so like okay so i don't think nothing of it we all get in front and they take a picture and uh turns out the picture was in front of like the bar that they have on the on the ferry you know so it was like they always like they always say like part of my career was i went from like hero to zero in about 30 seconds you know because
0: I'm looking he, at, I'm looking at the picture right now. Yeah,
1: right. So there's a bar and still I, in the I picture, see you right? And I
0: standing there on the left. You got all these <laughs> glasses hanging behind you. There's, there's margarita <laughs> glasses. There's
1: right. Right. Glasses. So, you know, so all this, like he, and like that, that, I guess like the civilian that took that picture, you know, gave it to the daily news right. and it was like the next day it was like, you know, miracle on the Hudson. And then we were like page two or three was us, you know, standing in front of the bar after this rescue and, Man, you would have thought I murdered a cat, man, because it was like, you know, they were call in. Like, my chief was like, did you take a picture in front of the bar? I go, I go what are you talking about, chief? Like, like, and he's like, after that rescue, you guys take a picture in front of the bar on the boat. And I'm like, "Um, I, well, OK, yeah, I guess we did. And he's like, oh, you know you how that looks. That's not
0: good. So I get called downtown. So we didn't have have shots of Jameson in hand. Chief. So
1: so like three days after I come in, I get the same chief comes to me and he hands me a booklet and he's like, I don't even know where to look to figure out, um, you know, like a sample report. He goes, but here it is. It was like 12, 13 pages on what you had to fill out. If you ever commandeered like a bus, a train, a ferry, whatever. So I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's not even like an old report I can go off of, you know? So I filled it out, but I never like completely finished it. So that's like the ongoing joke, too, Incredible. is like, you ever going to finish that report? You know, yeah. but when I went downtown, the other chiefs were kind of in there. And like, I literally thought I was going in there and going to be like you know, charges and all this other stuff. But like, you know, not presenting the department in a good way or something, mm-hmm. you know, and they all had a chuckle. They all went in there. And they go, I bet you thought we were calling down here because you were in front of the bar. Right. So he goes, well, I kind of thought about that, you know, and he goes, ah. You did good kid you know now just finish yeah. that report you know? yeah incredible, <laughs> so, man. incredible you know it's those moments too that you look at and you go back and you go such a good the fire department was so the new york city fire department was so good to me and i and i had such a blessed career that it, it it was hard to leave it um but i look back at it now and i go man it was crazy it was crazy times And, um, you know, some careers are like that. I I wish mine would a little bit more even keeled, but, uh, and that was, that was one of the reasons why I I really packed it in at 25 years. I said to myself, man, I, I kind of survived some, some crazy stuff and, um, I'm I'm, I'm able to leave with my health and everything. And I had a lot of my friends that, you know, especially at the trade center got sick and just aren't here anymore. And I said, you know what? It took me a while, but I said there's nothing wrong with enjoying life either.
2: Yeah.
1: Like you don't have to right. beat yourself up because right. you're living. So that's, that's right. my Great message to
0: everybody. Yeah. Incredible. We got to have you back. Can you come back? Share some more stories? Come back, we got, come we got back stuff, whenever you want. We got stuff we didn't even unpack today. You thwarted a mugging at one point, that Staten Island ferry <laughs> incident. Yeah. Let's have you back. Uh, and uh, and next, we'll more.
1: next time I come back, ask me to tell you about the Lincoln Quapay story. Got it. Well You'll, do. uh, it, it's, it's both humbling and sad and yet, um, pretty, pretty fire department funny in a way. Sure thing. But
0: All right. We'll take a pause on this day. We honor the 343 that you mentioned, those firefighters that were lost the hundreds more, uh, on that day the thousands uh, that were killed uh, when those two planes hit those buildings. We thank you for your service and for taking the time to to dig in and share it. Uh, And again, like I said before, we don't take for granted uh, what it means mentally and emotionally to do that. But maybe if in taking these moments to lean into it and remember, especially at this 20-year mark, uh, maybe it can remind us a few things. One, how we hope and pray that these things never happen again. and that we are the America that runs in. We are the Americans that run in. We are the country that despite flaws and and no perfections, we are the ones that are willing to step up. And in those moments, we can rise to the occasion. And maybe Pete gives you a reminder today of what we're capable of, even when we feel like we're more divided than we ever have been, right?
1: Brian, thank you very much for keeping the history alive because if people like yourself don't, keep the message going right we're doomed to repeat it right so thank you for keeping it out there
0: incredibly powerful on this 20-year anniversary of 9-11 thanks a lot pete
1: you got it brian thank you very much
0: i'm brian jodis this has been pick up the six podcast